Our scripture reading, our scripture reading this morning is taken from Psalm 110, also Isaiah 53. Both of these passages are prophecies that speak of the coming of Jesus. We'll read together first Psalm 110. It's a psalm that speaks of the coming of the Messianic King. Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord had sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. We'll also read Isaiah 53, verses 1 through to 9. This is part of one of the well-known suffering servant passages in Isaiah. Isaiah 53, starting at verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Let's now sing together Mark 15, verses 1 through to 15.
This passage is the trial of Jesus in the Roman court. He's already been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, tried in the Jewish court by the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jewish people there. He's been found guilty of blasphemy, worthy of death. And now Jesus is brought in the court of the Romans before Pilate. So our text begins, Mark 15, verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, There was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And after the proclamation of God's word, we'll sing together Psalm 110. The verses 1, 4, and 6. Dear brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning as we read through the law, were you convicted of sin? It may not have been this morning, but in our life, we all have these moments where the Holy Spirit just convicts us of sin that we have committed. It might have been something we ourselves can't believe we've done, something so out of character. Maybe it was something that you've been struggling with for a long time and you, and you fell into sin again. Or maybe there was this pattern on your life that you had been living in and all of a sudden you realize that actually that that way of life that you were living went against God's law. There are moments when when our guilt, when our shame, when our unworthiness, it it just weighs so heavily on our hearts. And it's in these moments, brothers and sisters, that the beauty and the wonder of the text that we have before us just speaks to us. And through this this gospel message that comes out in these 15 verses here, the Holy Spirit just picks us up and gives us comfort and gives us hope. And that's because our text this morning is the trial of Jesus when he stands before Pilate and when he's condemned as the King of the Jews. 
What's so comforting is that when Mark tells us about the trial of Jesus, his focus is is right on that accusation that Jesus is king of the Jews. And what Mark wants to show us all is that as king, Jesus stands condemned in our place and for us. Mark wants to show us this. He wants to show us exactly what kind of king Jesus is and that he is a king condemned in his people's place. And so that's going to be our theme as we look at this text together this morning. At his trial, Jesus shows that he is a king who is condemned in the place of his people. And we're going to step through this passage and we're going to see that there are three ways that Jesus shows that he is a king condemned in our place. Firstly, he does this by his silence. Secondly, by his substitution. And thirdly, by his sentence. So in the first place, Jesus demonstrates that he is a king condemned for his people by his silence. Let's just imagine for a moment that we're on trial. We're in court, standing before the judge, and we're accused of committing a a crime that we didn't do. What would you do in that situation? I think the one thing that every single one of us would do would be to argue for our innocence. We would argue. We would hire a lawyer. We would build a case. We'll do our best to prove that we are not guilty. And yet it does sometimes happen that innocent people are convicted in court for something that they didn't do. In 1981, there was a man in Florida, his name was William Dillon, 21 years old. He was put on trial for murder. He did his best to prove his innocence. He hired a lawyer, he pleaded not guilty, and throughout the entire trial, he maintained his innocence. And yet the judge found him guilty, locked him up for life. It's only 27 years later that DNA evidence was available to show that he didn't commit the crime, sentenced for a crime he didn't commit. Now, in his trial as well, Jesus is accused and he is sentenced for a crime that he didn't commit. You may say, hang on a minute, Jesus is being accused here of being the king of the Jews, and and that is exactly who he was. We just read together Psalm 110, this picture of this coming Davidic king who will rule in power, the psalm that prophesies of Jesus Christ. In Mark 11, Jesus, he'd just come into Jerusalem. This is days before his trial, the triumphal entry. And the crowds had come behind Jesus and they'd, and they'd saying, Hosanna, or, or save us. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus was a king. But we also have to be clear on exactly what Jesus is standing before Pilate accused of. And that is, he's being accused of being a political rebel. When Pilate heard that king of the Jews, he would have thought, here is a political rebel who has come to take the authority of Caesar. And that's exactly what the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, were hoping for. You see, our our text begins early in the morning. Jesus isn't before Pilate at this point in time, but he's standing before the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. 
Now, we're not told why Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council here, but our text does give us a clue. See, on the previous evening, Jesus had been found guilty of blasphemy. This is Mark 14, verse 64. And under Jewish law, the, the crime of blasphemy was punishable by death. But at this point in history, the Jews, they couldn't convict someone themselves. It was only the Romans who could convict someone and hand out the death penalty. And so, the council meets again early in the morning. And we notice that in verse 2, when Jesus comes before the Romans, the Romans who could sentence him to death, the accusation has changed. No longer is it blasphemy taking the role of God, but it's treason taking the authority of Caesar. The accusation has changed. Are you king of the Jews? And so the council meets early in the morning. They changed their accusation to something that would have forced Pilate to sit up, that would have forced him to take action and convict Jesus. And it was a smart move on their behalf because this is the one accusation that would fill Pilate with fear. The Jews at this time in history were, were looking for someone to come, this coming Davidic king who would rescue them from the Romans. In fact, at this point in history, 10% of all of the money going into Caesar's bank account was being withdrawn just to keep these pesky Jews under control. Archaeologists have also found some of the songs that the Jews sang at this time. They've been dated to the, to the reign of King Herod, King Herod who killed all the boys in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. And in one of those songs, we get a picture of this king that the Jews were expecting. Behold, O Lord, and raise up unto them their king, the son of David, and gird him with strength that he may shatter unrighteous rulers, and that he may purge Jerusalem from nations that trample her down to destruction. They were singing about it. Purge Jerusalem from the Romans. And this expectation of this king who would who would rid Israel of the Romans, is, is somewhat expected when you look at the Old Testament prophecies. We read together from Psalm 110. If we turn back there quickly to Psalm 110, we see a picture not unlike the picture in the song that we just heard from. Here in verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, as the Lord says to, to the Davidic king, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 2, rule in the midst of your enemies. Verse 3 speaks of this king's day of power. Verse 5, it speaks of him shattering kings. Verse 6, executing judgment, filling the nations with corpses, shattering chiefs. It's this picture of a king purging Jerusalem from nations that trample her down. And so here Jesus stands before Pilate. Pilate asks him that question, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the one they are singing about? Are you the one who has come to purge Jerusalem from those nations that trample her down? Are you a political rebel?
And Jesus responds, You have said so. You have said so. What are we to make of that? Is that, is that a yes? Is that a no? It's, a, it's an ambiguous answer. That's the first thing that we have to note about it. Jesus deliberately answers Pilate in a way where he neither confesses that he, that he is the king and he neither denies that he is the king. Jesus is, is telling Pilate, I am a king, but I'm not, I'm not the sort of king that you and the Jews are expecting. And this leads us to the second observation about Jesus' response, which know as ambiguity, but also as brevity. Brevity just means it's shortness. I just say brevity because it rhymes with ambiguity. But we have to notice that this answer is short. In the Greek, it's actually just two words. We don't have to only notice the brevity of this answer to Pilate, but also the amount that Jesus speaks in his entire trial. Do you notice that when we read the account of Jesus' trial in the Gospel of Mark, he speaks only once. And it's only these two words, you have said so. Pilate comes to Jesus and he asks him this question, are you king of the Jews? Jesus answers, you have said so. And then the chief priests come along and we read that they're accusing Jesus of many things. Luke, he tells us what these many things were, misleading the nation, stirring up the people, forbidding to give taxes to Caesar, all the sorts of things that a political rebel would be doing. Yet Jesus gives no response. He remains silent. He says nothing. If you were accused of a crime you didn't commit, what would you do? You would make a case. You would argue. You would hire a lawyer. That's what William Dillon did. But Jesus here is silent. And we know from the other gospel accounts that Jesus actually did speak. He did speak more than just these two words at his trial. But Mark deliberately doesn't record any of the other things that Jesus has said because he wants us to focus on Jesus' silence. He wants this silence to to speak volumes as we read through his gospel. And so we have to let this silence speak to us because it tells us exactly what kind of king Jesus is. Our minds, they should jump to that passage we read together in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Is Jesus a king? Yes, Jesus is a king, but Jesus is also a lamb. Jesus is the king who is also the lamb of God who came to die for the sins of the world. You have a similar picture here to what we get in Revelation 5. Perhaps the children know Revelation 5. It's in the book of Revelation where the angel, he comes and he's holding a scroll and the scroll has these seals and no one can open those seals on the scroll. 
in John. He starts to cry. But then one of the elders who's standing there in heaven says to John, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That is, this Davidic king, he's come and he's conquered. But then who does John see? Does he see a lion coming? No, he sees a lamb. A lamb standing as though he had been slain. The king is a lamb. In Revelation 5, we get a picture of this lamb king on, on the far side of the cross. He's done his mediating work. But in Mark 15, it's this same lamb king standing there on the other side of the cross, silently, willingly, deliberately about to lay down his life for his people. And so, when we are convicted of sin, when we're convicted of our guilt, we have to let this glorious reality speak to us. That Jesus, our King, came to lay down His life for us, His people, so that our guilt is removed. Actually, the tradition of the early church is that the Gospel of Mark came from the pen of Mark, but Standing behind this gospel was the voice of the Apostle Peter. Tradition from multiple church fathers is that Mark was actually the scribe of Peter. And so what I would like us to do this morning is to take a minute and, and just think of Peter as he was recounting this story to Mark. Because, you know, the passage just before our text is a passage that would have filled Peter with grief, guilt and sorrow. Because it's the passage where Peter had denied Christ. In verse 71 of Mark 14, there Peter tells how he began to invoke a curse on himself and began to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. It was when Peter denied his Lord and denied his Master. And you can just picture Peter as he recounts this story and he tells Mark, even, even years later, and he can't believe that he did that. That there was words that he spoken. That, 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 that those thoughts came out of his heart. But then Peter continues on with his story. The very next thing he tells of is Jesus standing there silently as the King of the Jews the King condemned in His place, the King condemned in our place. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And brothers and sisters, it is this, this grace and this alone that can turn our grief into a broken-hearted joy. And so we come to our second point this morning. At his trial, Jesus shows what type of king he is also through his substitution. And so Jesus is standing there before Pilate. He's standing there silently. And Pilate, as the judge, he still has to hand down his judgment. Is Jesus the king of the Jews or is he not? 
Pilate listens to Jesus and it leads him to an answer. He listens to the silence of Jesus and and it leads him to conclude that Jesus is innocent. The thing about silence is that silence can tell you an awful lot, but you have to read that silence right. And such a thing as a, as a guilty silence, that sort of silence where you, where you look down at your shoes and, and you don't say anything because you know you are guilty and everyone else knows it and nothing you can say can change the facts. But the silence of Jesus isn't a guilty silence. It's a silence in, in verse 5 that leaves Pilate amazed. And so Pilate concludes that Jesus must be an innocent man. But brothers and sisters, Pilate's read this silence wrong because it's not the silence of an innocent man, it's the silence of an innocent lamb. The silence of the suffering servant. The silence of the one who has come to take the sins of the world upon himself. So look at how the events unfold. Pilate, he wants this this innocent man to go free, and it looks like there's this perfect opportunity opening up for him. There was a tradition that at the Passover feast, Pilate would release for the Israelites a prisoner who they chose, a little bit like a presidential pardon. And Pilate, he wants to use this opportunity to let Jesus go free. And so in verse 8, the the crowds come up to Jesus and they're, I mean, up to Pilate and they're asking for the person that they want to be set free this year. And this year, the person that they've chosen is Barabbas. But then in verse 9, Pilate decides that he's going to mix things up a little bit. And he comes with his own suggestion. Instead of the Jews asking for their prisoner like what usually happened, he comes with his own suggestion and he says, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And in Pilate's mind, this makes perfect sense. You have Barabbas, and he's standing there, and he's entirely guilty. He'd been involved in the riot. He'd committed murder in the riot. Barabbas was really a political rebel. But here was Jesus, who was no political rebel, but rather an innocent man. But Pilate's plan fails because Jesus was in reality the innocent lamb. This perfect picture of the gospel comes out for us. A picture of the innocent taking place of the guilty. They have Barabbas. He's guilty. He's a criminal, a murderer, a false king, and he's destined for death. And you have Jesus who's innocent, who's spotless, the true king, dying so that Barabbas may have life. You just have to picture Barabbas. He's sitting there on death row. He hears that key in his lock. He walks out of the cell. He's in the sunlight and he sits down. No longer condemned for death. But then he's faced with this question. And it's the exact same question that Pilate is faced with. It's the most important question that Barabbas will ever have to answer. And it's, and it's who is this man? Who is this man that set him free? Is this Jesus the king of the Jews? We've no idea how Barabbas answers this question. He just disappears off the pages of history. But we do know how one of Barabbas' fellow criminals answered this question. 
was a criminal who was hung next to Jesus on the cross. When the other criminal began to mock Jesus, can you remember his words? He said, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Listen to what he says. Like Pilate, he confesses that Jesus is innocent. This man has done nothing wrong. But he goes one step further. He makes another confession. Jesus is not only innocent, but he is also the king. The king who is coming into his kingdom. And so you see, it wasn't really Barabbas who Jesus led off death row. It was this man. It was this criminal on the cross. It's everyone who embraces him, not just as an innocent man, but as the innocent lamb who is also their king. And so that question comes to us this morning as well. Is Jesus an innocent man or is he the lamb who is our king? So many people in our society will say Jesus is innocent. Justin Trudeau, Dalai Lama, Mohammed, they all say Jesus is an innocent man. Jesus is a great man. But when you read Mark 15, do you see your Saviour there about to be slain for your sin, for your guilt, as your substitute? So we move on to our third point this morning. And we'll see that Jesus also reveals what kind of king he is through his sentencing. We've come now through to verse 12. Pilate's plan for Jesus to be set free has been thwarted. Barabbas is going to be released instead of Jesus. And Pilate is still left with this question. Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? The crowds, they give him an answer. Crucify him. Pilate responds, but he's an innocent man. Why? What evil has he done? But the crowds just shout even more, crucify him. And this is where the great injustice of Jesus' trial just, just pours out. Because to avoid a riot, just to satisfy the crowd, Pilate condemns Jesus to crucifixion. You see, when, when the judge sentenced William Dillon, he was trying to do the right thing. He was convinced and he was absolutely convicted that Dylan had committed murder. But here, Pilate, Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent, and yet he doesn't care. And yet it's in this great injustice that we see the greatest display of justice because the sentence that Jesus receives was crucifixion. And children, you know what crucifixion was. I'm sure you've seen a picture in your children's Bible of someone on a cross hung there between heaven and between earth. But you know what crucifixion meant? Crucifixion meant that you were rejected by the people who live on earth, but you're also rejected by God who is in heaven. And this is how Jesus died. Rejected by man, rejected by God as a sacrifice who came to die for us. And that gets us to the very heart 
of what it means for Jesus to be king. Because Jesus is not only our king, but he is also our high priest. He's our high priest who who has come to offer himself as the sacrifice for his people. You see, that was the perspective that the Jews in Jesus' day were missing. They would read through Psalm 110. And they would see this picture of a coming king, a king who would rule, a king with power, a king who would shatter, a king who would execute judgment. But they missed that verse right there in the middle of the psalm, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's one small verse. It's almost a whisper there in the psalm. You can go right past it without reading it. But those words, they are so important because Christ is the king after the order of Melchizedek. The priest king who had come not to deal with Romans, but to deal with sin. And so in Mark 15, Jesus stands there before Pilate and he confesses that he is that king. Are you the king of the Jews? Silence. Yes, the king, but also the lamb. Yes, the king, but also the substitute who has come to die for his people. Yes, the king, but the king sentenced in our place. And so the question that each of us have to go home with this morning is, is Jesus your king? Is he your king? Amen.